interesting words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received the Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again this morning together. Father, you are God, there is none beside you, and we are humbled at the thought that you would provide for us the redemption you have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for this wonderful gift of redemption, and we thank you for the provision of Christ throughout every day of our lives. As we walk with you, Lord, as we follow after you, you are faithful to lead, to guide, to instruct, to correct, and rebuke us as we would follow after you in your word. And we thank you for the presence of your spirit dwelling within us as believers in Christ. And Lord, we just pray that as we consider the truths you've given us in your word this morning as written by the Apostle Paul, that we will have understanding hearts and receptive hearts and minds to your truth. Lord, as well, that we would follow the instruction and exhortation that's given, as well take heed of the warning that is before us, as we discovered on, uh, in our last study of this, of this passage. Father, we pray that every heart and mind would be submitted to you and brought unto submission before the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that you are God who's faithfully working to perform your redemptive purpose in hearts and lives, and so we trust you and rest you, rest in you to do that which only you can. And we thank you that you are continually at work, as we are reminded even this morning. We praise you and thank you for your goodness and your grace, and we ask that you be glorified and honored in and through all things, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. As I mentioned last week, this, uh, within this portion of Paul's epistle, he provides a warning and an acknowledgement and also an exhortation to the Colossian believers. Last week, we spent our time in this passage considering, uh, Paul's, first of all, Paul's warning against persuasive deceivers. And Paul warns in verse 4, "...and this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words." Within this verse, Paul warns against all those who would attempt to turn these believers away from the preeminence of Christ and the power of the gospel. If you recall with me, uh, throughout the book of Colossians, Paul emphasizes in, in, in the face of the opposition of those who are Gnostics or what we would become what we recognize as Gnosticism, um, we know that Paul is emphasizing the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Again, uh, one of the Gnosticism is defined... Um, in, in many ways, and, and it, it's something that is hard to nail down, as I've mentioned previously. However, at the same time, one of the marks of Gnosticism was that they believed that all matter is evil, inherently evil, all matter. And therefore, the fact that Jesus would come in the flesh as a Son of God, it, from that perspective, would mean then that He as well had to be sinful if He could not have come in the flesh as a Son of God because He would be sinful in flesh. So therefore, he could not have been the Son of God, deity. And so they rejected that truth. They also, Gnosticism also held to the, to the belief that you grew in knowledge in some mystical sense to know God, rather than the manifestation, the physical manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we know is the only way to the Father. Jesus said, as you recall in John 14, 
and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so this false belief uh, and this false teaching and this uh, heretical teaching uh, of Gnosticism would reject the preeminence of Christ. It would, it would dismiss the person of Christ, the importance of Christ. Because if you can know God through some mystical sense or knowledge rather than through the manifestation of His Son, or if you could know Him, or if all matter is evil. Now, all men are wicked, inherently wicked. We know that. We are wicked in our nature because of Adam's sin passed on to us. And our actual sins also, the sins we commit, cause us to be guilty and stand guilty before God. So men are wicked, but it's not that all matter is, is evil in and of itself. All matter is under the curse of sin. All people are under the curse of sin. Christ came born of a woman, but not of a man. And therefore, he being the Son of God, born in the flesh, manifested in the flesh, that we might have access to God the Father. God made a way to us through his Son that we might have redemption. And so there, there, there were these deceivers, and Paul says, And this I say, lest any man beguile you with enticing words. And so he's warning that there are those who would attempt to turn these believers away from the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And again, the preeminence of Christ is not that you make Jesus first, because you don't make him first, you don't make him creator, you don't make him savior, and you don't make him Lord. God the Father has declared that he is preeminent, that he is savior, he is Lord, and it's not that we make him any of that. We acknowledge, we bow humbly to, before him in this truth of recognition of who he is. And Paul is saying, be warned, lest there be those who would beguile you, deceive you with enticing words. The verb beguile means to deceive or to delude, and it implies that of to con or to hoodwink, to dupe or to fool. And the adjective enticing means persuasive speech. And we considered last week three considerations made by Paul within this verse, that is verse 4. First of all, there are deceivers present. He says, lest any man. So they were already present. The deceivers were already there. Then he said that uh, should beguile you. So second, they intentionally attempt to deceive. They are doing this intentionally, and they are deceiving with this purpose. And then third, they convincingly do so with persuasive speech when he says with enticing words. Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning faith, grace be with thee, amen. So here Paul warns Timothy and says, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Now Jude references this as well concerning the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, once and for all time delivered to the saints. And so Paul tells Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust, the faith, the truth, the gospel, the truth of Christ, avoiding profane and vain babblings, profane, perverse, and empty babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. So all that would be called science, which would be really the philosophies of men. And I told you last week, and I don't want to belabor the point, but Paul is in no way denouncing the fact that, that we are to not observe and recognize the tr philosophical truths. In fact, we approach Scripture from a, a philosophical position. We really do. And so Paul's not saying, oh, none of this is good. He's saying, avoid and shun all traditions and empty teachings of men that would distract you or point you away or draw you away from Christ and his preeminence. So we are to avoid all of those things, not avoiding truth that's out there, but yet avoiding all things that would appear to be persuasive 
and yet drawing us away from the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, avoid these things. He writes further to clarify this in Colossians 2.8. Listen to what he says, beware lest any man, just verses later in Colossians 2, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain or empty deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and here it is, here's the, here's the clincher to the statement, and not after Christ. So all that would point us from Christ or distract us from Christ or pull us from Christ, he says, do not even engage in those things. Do not, do not become involved in that, but rather look to Christ in his preeminence. Paul writes uh, concerning this, as I said, in verse, just verses later in chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, but shun, avoid, profane, worthless, and vain, empty babblings, chatter or talk, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. So he says that which is just vain and empty and profane, that which is worthless, that which is perverse, he says just avoid it altogether because it just leads to more ungodliness if it's not pointing us to Christ and if we're not able to point men to Christ through such, such means. So this morning we're going to, as I mentioned, pick up our study from last week. And having already examined the warning provided by Paul, which we just reviewed briefly, verse 4, we will spend our time this morning looking into Paul's acknowledgement of the steadfast faith of the Colossian believers and Paul's exhortation to the Colossian believers to continue to uphold the preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ. I told you there's three things Paul does within this passage. He first provides the warning, verse 4. He then provides the... Uh, acknowledgement. He acknowledges the steadfastness of the faith and faithfulness of these Colossian believers. And then third, he follows that with an exhortation to them to remain steadfast, to continue in the truth of Christ, upholding the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So let's look at Paul's acknowledgement of the steadfastness faith of the faith or the steadfast faith of the Colossian believers in verse 5. Paul says, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul begins by explaining that his physical absence, notice his statement here, and remember, we'll see in a moment, that Paul had never met these believers face to face. This Colossian church was not established by Paul, but yet Paul was invested and interested in them all the same. He says, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit. So he begins by explaining that his physical absence in no way, shape, or form hindered his spiritual interest in the faithfulness of the Colossian believers. He says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, if you look back just verses prior, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and in all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul explained that in these verses that he had a great desire for these believers to grow in the truth of Christ. He further expressed that this desire was backed by his personal commitment to selflessly give all he could of himself to ensure that this church spiritually prospered, having never met them face to face. Both Paul's commitment and the steadfastness of the faith, or the steadfast faith of the Colossian believers, serve as a reminder of a universal truth. And this is so important for you to understand. When I say the testimony, I'm talking about 
not a profession of a testimony, but a biblical, genuine testimony. So the testimony of faith in Christ, a genuine biblical testimony of faith in Christ, which will always be accompanied by faithfulness to Christ, precedes those who possess such faith. How many times did Paul write and say to these believers to whom he wrote these epistles, how that he'd heard of their faith, he'd heard of their faithfulness, he'd heard of their belief in Christ and their faithfulness to follow after Christ. The point is this, it is foolish for men to profess faith in Christ while displaying absolutely no faithfulness to the truth or teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not saving faith. And we find this rampant. By the way, I understand the Gnosticism that was entering into the church. I understand what was taking place. But hear me. People have the same mentality today. It may not be identified under the same category. But the fact of the matter is people think that a professed faith is equivalent to biblical faith, and it's not. Saying you believe, and we'll see this in a moment, but saying you believe in Jesus or that you believe that Jesus is or saying you believe in God and his salvation is not the same as possessing salvation in Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is that it is foolish for one to profess faith in Christ thinking that that has any significance if their life is also not a testimony of faithfulness to Christ and to the truth of Christ in following after him. Let us remember the truth which James emphasized in his epistle. I said we would mention this, and here we are, James 2, 18 through 20. James said, yea, or yes, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, James says, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils believe also and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain, empty and empty-handed is what vain means here. You empty and empty-handed man, that faith without works is dead. Here's what he's saying. He's not, now remember, let me clarify this just to be very, very uh, clear in, in explaining the truth of what James is stating. James is not saying that works produces faith. James is saying that faith produces works. And a man who says, I have faith without works, is a man who is empty-handed because there's no evidence in his life of any real genuine faith. Whereas James says, the works are the evidence of. Again, it's not we do righteousness to become righteous. But righteousness is the product of having been given the righteousness of Jesus dwelling within us. And so if Christ dwells in us, then righteousness, the very righteousness of God, has been imputed unto us, given to us, and credited, credited to our account. And if that be true, then righteousness is going to be a product of the presence of Christ within. Let me give you another analogy of this, and I've said this to you before, and I think it just really simplifies this truth. We expect the unregenerate, sinful man to act sinfully, don't we? Why do we not expect those who claim to have the imputed righteousness of Christ to them to not act righteously? Why would we excuse that as though that's something that, well, that's just the way it is? No, that's not just the way it is. If you've been given the righteousness of Christ, then righteousness will exude from you. And if you are still yet in your sins as an unbelieving sinner, then guess what's going to come out of your life? Sinfulness. 
Because that's your nature. Remember something, we still have a sinful nature with which we must contend as believers in Christ. But we are not controlled by, we are not under the bondage to that sinful nature. For we've been set free in Christ. It doesn't mean we don't sin. Again, let me clarify this. Many people view sainthood, if you will, (laughs) as sinners attempting to achieve some status with God as, as, as a saint. That is totally backwards from what the Scriptures refers to being as one who is a saint. To be a saint is not that you are a sinner who is attempting to become a saint. To be a saint is that you were a sinner that that has now been delivered from sin by God, redeemed unto himself, declared to be a saint, no longer a sinner. It's interesting. The Scripture never refers to you who, who are believers in Jesus Christ as sinners at this present time. The Scripture refers to you as saints. You know what that means? And I know the song, and I don't, want to, I don't want to harp on this, and I don't want to be extremely dogmatic on this, because I can understand what people are attempting to convey when making such a statement. But hear me, I think we do a great disservice to the power of the grace of God in salvation when we make statements like this, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, I was a sinner who has been saved by grace, who is now a saint. And what that means is that the grace of God is able and powerful enough to transform my life into that into a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know the verse, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. No longer a sinner as he was. Now, here's the difference as I mentioned a while ago. So, sainthood is not a sinner attempting to achieve a status of sainthood. Sainthood, being a saint means that I am one who's declared righteous by God, declared to be holy by God, sanctified unto God. I am now declared to be a saint by God himself. I'm just a saint that still happens to sin. Not a sinner attempting to become a saint. And there is a vast difference between those two statements. And so James says, faith without works is dead. He says, you're you're empty-handed. You're making professions of possessing a faith that has no power in your life to transform you. And he says, this is not faith at all. It's dead. It's non-existent. So those who profess faith without the evidence of professed faith are empty or empty-handed. In other words, their claims are empty, lacking the evidence of genuine faith altogether. So Paul goes on to say in in Colossians 2 here, and verse 5, Regarding the faithfulness of the Colossian church, Paul acknowledged two truths in verse 5. He said, joying and beholding your order, the testimony of the faithfulness and the faith, testimony of the faith of the Colossian believers brought joy to Paul. That's what he's saying. And Paul expressed this joy by first mentioning their order. The implication of Paul's statement concerning the Colossians' order is that the church was not acting in some rogue manner, but was acting in an orderly fashion as the church should function. These believers were functioning as a church should according to the faith which had been delivered unto them. Jude verse 3, again, Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, once and for all time. They were holding to this truth. Their faithfulness to Christ was demonstrated within the church body by a group of believers gathering together and functioning according to the faith which was handed down to the saints. Again, faith without works is dead. So this professed faith that does not produce evidence within one's life and power within one's life of transformation and also putting us 
in bondage to righteousness, free, but free from sin and in bondage to Christ, enslaved to Christ. If it's not that type of faith, then it's not faith at all. Paul goes on to say, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And now steadfastness, it means, to, it means firm or solid. So the church was firm in their faith. This church was not easily moved by the current of the day. While there was a present danger to allow the error of the deceivers to which Paul warned in verse 4, they had not given in to such heresy, but remained focused on the preeminence of Christ. He says, remain focused on the preeminence of Christ, uphold the preeminence of Christ. You know, I, I heard something a week or two ago that's extremely disturbing. I was listening to some form of a documentary, if you will, of a well-known, what most people would call or consider a pastor in America who is extremely well-known, pastors an extremely large church, megachurch, extremely large. Not the largest, but a large one. And in the documentary concerning his life, and there were many facts that were being given, so I have no reason to doubt this because of the detail of the facts and the manner in which it was being presented. Though I do not have documented evidence myself for this, the way it was presented would cause me to believe that these are factual statements. And it referred to this one guy who had come to quote-unquote faith in Christ, so to speak. This, and, and the whole testimony was, this is when I got serious about Jesus. Now, people may word something like that out of ignorance, but I would expect someone who is a professing pastor to have much more clear testimony of faith in Christ than some general generic statement as this is when I got serious about Jesus. Furthermore, they went on in the documentary, and this was not him speaking, but speaking on his behalf, that someone in his family had died at one point in time. And this was after having been a professed believer for some period of time, not like just a brand new believer in Christ. And because this person died, the statement was then made, and I said, what in the world? And it's extremely disturbing to me, and it should be to you too. Because this family member died, the statement was then made, his faith was really shaken. That is a huge problem. What kind of faith do you have? Is that the faith of Christ? Absolutely not. And I would go as far as to venture to say that this man does not even know the Lord at all. And it's not just for that reason, but for other reasons as well that, are very, that he himself has declared and stated publicly. But the reality is to make a statement like someone dies in your family and therefore your faith is shaken, no. Our faith is not shaken because of death. It is strengthened because of Christ and his faithfulness. If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul stated. This idea, if your faith is just easily shaken or shaken at all, in terms of you are not firm and solid and planted in Christ, then there is a huge problem. We are to examine ourselves to see that we be in the faith. We are to examine our lives and see that there is evidence of faith from the moment of profession of faith in Christ, confess faith in Christ, up until present moment. Now, does that mean that every moment of our lives we see that we have been faithful to the faith? No, we have sinned and we have failed. But I can look back from the time of right now at 48 years old to the time of 12 years old when I was born again, and I can see one consistent thing. You know what that is? The presence of faith. 
And it's not because of me. It's because of the author and finisher of that faith who keeps me. So the idea that faith is shaken because of death, or any reason, but specifically because of death, is a huge problem. It's interesting how many people who profess faith in Christ not only fail to demonstrate faithfulness to the Lord, as I previously mentioned, but also seem to be so easily shaken in their professed faith. Again, how, why is it we should not be shaken in faith at all or in any manner? Because it is Jesus who is the author. He is the progenerator. It is Jesus who is the perfecter, the finisher of faith, Hebrews 12, 2. It is Christ who is faithful to complete the work which he has begun. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. The fact of the matter is, if you are trusting in yourself for salvation, then you have to trust in yourself to maintain that salvation. And it's empty. That is not biblical, genuine faith. But if I am resting and trusting in Christ, and we're going to get into this in just a moment, as Paul says in the verse, but if I am resting and trusting in Christ and his sufficiency, then guess who I'm resting and trusting in to maintain this and continue this work that has begun? It is Christ, not me. Here's the bottom line. Listen, let me just, I must spell it out as clearly as I know how to. You can't trust yourself. You can't trust yourself. I can't trust myself. And I am not sufficient to save me and redeem me, and neither am I sufficient to maintain such salvation. It is Christ who is all-sufficient, who is all-powerful, who is capable and faithful. We've seen so far in this passage Paul's warning of the deceivers, verse 4, acknowledgement of the faithfulness of the church at Colossae in verse 5, and then it leads us to verses 6 and 7, in which we see Paul's exhortation to the church to remain rooted and to grow in faith. Look at verses 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Within these verses, Paul provides the church with the antidote to all the heresy, to all the deception that the Colossian church would face. There's only one answer to these problems, and the answer is to submit to and live under the preeminent Christ, acknowledging his preeminence. Verse 6, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now the conjunction therefore in the phrase, as ye have therefore, is referred to as a logical inferential, which means that it conveys a deduction, it conveys a conclusion, it conveys a, a summary. In, in other words, it would only stand to reason that those who had received Christ live according to the power and preeminence of Christ. Because you've received Him, so it only stands to reason that that would be now the life source of your existence. This truth is further clarified and emphasized by the first conjunction, as, when he says, as ye have therefore received Christ. In the manner that you have received Jesus, so you are to continue to live in that like manner. So then the question, which must be answered, is this. How had these Colossian believers received Jesus? As you have received 
as you have therefore received Christ Jesus. So as you have received him, so you are to walk accordingly in like manner. So how had these Colossian believers received Jesus? And the answer is in Paul's wording in the verse. Notice, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord. If he is Lord, then guess what else he is? He's preeminent. And that's what Paul's emphasizing here. He is preeminent. He is Lord. He is above all, before all. The title Christ, it means anointed one or Messiah. And the Colossians had received Jesus according to his claims as God's anointed Messiah and the testimony of God that he was such. Yet Paul further declared, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. So to receive Jesus as Savior, and look, this is so important because this is the difference between a dead, empty, worthless, perverse, so-called faith or profession and a genuine, biblical redemption account. To receive Jesus as Savior is to also submit to Him as Lord. You don't determine what to do with who He is. God has declared who He is. The biblical teaching is what has been termed or named or dubbed today often as Lordship Salvation. While many reject this truth, the Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And it never makes a distinction between those two as though they are separate entities or separate viewpoints of Jesus. Now, sometimes we read Jesus as Savior, sometimes we read Jesus as Lord, but here's the issue. It's the same Jesus who is both. So there is no distinction made between as though there's a difference between these two realities or truths concerning who He is. I believe the ridiculousness of the argument against the biblical, this biblical teaching can be easily understood if one to revert, were to reverse the statement with this question. People will make this statement all the time. They'll say, oh, you can receive Jesus as Savior and not, not submit to Him as Lord. That's nonsense. No wonder we have such superficial professions of faith that exist when that's the mentality that people believe, that you can make some empty, worthless, useless profession of salvation in Christ while having no desire or humility in submitting to His Lordship. So I believe that this ridiculous argument can be clarified by reversing the statement in this question. Is it possible for a man to receive Jesus as Lord and not receive Him as Savior? And the resounding answer is no. If you are submitted to the Lordship of Christ, receiving Him as Lord, then guess what else? You've received Him as Savior. You're submitted to the truth of who He is. Now, I know the argument. I can hear it already. People saying, wait a minute. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's absolutely true, but that doesn't, that's not receiving him as Lord. That's acknowledging the truth that that's who he is, regardless of the resistance and opposition and rebellion against that truth. Every man will be brought to the humility, or to, to humbly submit themselves in humility before the Lord and confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But no man can receive Christ as Lord without also receiving him as Savior. 
And in like manner, no man can receive Christ as Savior without also submitting to Him as Lord. He is who He declared Himself to be and who God has confirmed Him to be. Now, I believe an important truth concerning this is, not, is that it's not dependent upon man's ability to understand the depths and complete meaning of this truth of the Lordship of Christ, but rather it is dependent on the objective truth of who Jesus is. So in other words, it's not a matter of, oh, when I came to Christ in saving faith, I understood that He was Lord above all. I understood and I submitted to Him absolutely and fully. I will say this, at the moment of salvation, we do humbly to the best of our understanding, submit ourselves to him and say, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Remember Paul on the road to Damascus? How interesting is that? Remember what Paul says when God stops him, Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he doesn't say, Savior, what will thou have me to do? What does he say? Lord, what will thou have me to do? He was submitting to the lordship of this Jesus, saying, he is Lord. What is it you want me to do? Submitting himself to him under this working of God in bringing Paul to redemption. And so we see here that this is an objective truth of the person of Christ. And and it is true, obviously, that once one has been redeemed, he will continue to realize the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ throughout his entire lifetime. But yet understand this also, to reject the Lordship of Christ is to also reject his salvation. Paul exhorted the church, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. The Colossian believers had received Jesus for who He is, both Messiah, Savior, and Lord, the Christ and Lord. And they must now continue to live accordingly to the salvation they had received and the Lordship of their Savior. It is this one truth, again, that is the antidote to all the opposition to the truth of the gospel. For it is the sufficiency of our Savior as the preeminent Lord, the very image of invisible God, says in Colossians, and the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as Paul says in Colossians, who is able to keep them. Jude verses 24 and 25, I've referenced this already, but Jude writes, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. In verse 7, We read on in Colossians 2, Paul explains how it will look when one submits to the Lordship of Christ. Look at what he says. When you acknowledge the the preeminence of Christ and humbly bow to the preeminence of Christ and Lordship of Jesus, Paul says, root it and build up in Him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So to be rooted is to be deeply planted, to be established is to be established or confirmed, and abounding is overflowing. So Paul explains that to live in, the sub, in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ will result in one being deeply rooted or planted, confirmed in the faith, and overflowing with thanksgiving. These are the evidence of genuine biblical faith here in Christ, acknowledging the preeminence of Christ, submitting to the Lordship of Christ, receiving Him as Savior, receiving Him as Lord, because again, you cannot differentiate the two. That'd be like saying, well, I, I'm going I'm to take Jesus as Savior, but not Creator. Right? It, again, remember, salvation is not a buffet line. You know, in a buffet line, it's nice to be able to go and say, well, I'll take some of this. I don't want any of that. No, we receive Christ, and He is who He is. 
We don't determine who he is. We don't define who he is. We are to acknowledge and humbly bow to the truth of who he is for his very person. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live accordingly in submission to his lordship. That's what Paul is saying. He says, as you have received Christ, how did you receive him? You received him as the Savior, Messiah, Christ. You received him as Lord. This is who he is. So live accordingly. And to do so is to be rooted, to be established, confirmed in the faith, and have a heart that is overflowing with thanksgiving for the goodness, the grace, and the mercy of such a wonderful God. Remember, he's preeminent. He's above all. He's before all. And yet, he has shown kindness and grace and mercy to us. How could we not be overflowing with thanksgiving? How could it not be owned with thanksgiving? To know and grow in Christ is the only answer to the deception that surrounds us. It is the very preeminence of Jesus as declared by the Father to which we must submit ourselves every moment of our lives. Here's Paul's exhortation to the church. By being rooted and grounded, continuing in the truth, as you've been taught, established in the faith, confirmed in the faith, firmly, solidly, solid, firmly and solid, solidly planted in the faith and rooted in Christ. And then Paul pretty much is summarizing all of this with this truth. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. Live as He is your Savior and your Lord if you have so received Him. As ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. But if you have received Him, here's the, here's the drop point. If you have received Him, then there is this evidence in your life that is exuded because of having received Him. And now the exhortation is, the warning is, beware lest anyone distract you from the preeminence of Jesus. And then he says also, he acknowledged their firm, solid position in the faith. And then exhorts them, continue therein, being rooted and grounded. Listen, if you've been born again, there's evidence in your life that you've been born again. And that is clear. And if that is clear, do not let anything or anyone distract you from the preeminence and lordship of Jesus and walk and live. Walk means to live. Live according to the same manner that you received Christ in his lordship submitted to him. I said a moment ago, in the moment of salvation, I remember as a 12-year-old boy coming to faith in Christ, to the best of my ability and understanding, I absolutely totally submitted myself to Christ. The best I knew how. Lord, I, I give, surrender all. I'm here. I, Lord, have mercy on me. And I remember that. But you know what I found out just not long after? I had not totally submitted to him. <laughs> I thought I had, and I did to the best of my understanding and ability. You know what I have found out? Now, 36 years later, I have still not fully submitted to him. It's a continual process. I humbled myself the best way I knew how is God actually humbled me. <laughs> and cry out to the Lord for mercy, saying, Lord, here I am, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I submit myself to you the best way I know how, but yet I have found out over the years, the Lord is constantly claiming, staking ground in my heart and in my life, saying, uh, this is mine, and you've not submitted this to me. 
It's a continual process. But the reality is, the, the fact that the Spirit of God continually does that in my life is one of the evidences of the reality that I've received Christ. <laughs> and He is present. So He is Lord. He is Savior. Live as your Lord and Savior if you have so received Him. And if you have received Him, there's evidence that you have. Continue to follow after Him. And if you profess to know Him, and yet you have no desire for righteousness and truth and a hunger to know Him, then you stand empty and empty-handed before Him. No matter what the profession is, it's emptiness. And it means absolutely nothing. He is Lord. And here's the reality of it. To all of us, let us remember this truth. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So no man will ever escape from submitting to this truth that Jesus is who he says he is, he is Lord. But the difference is, at that point in which they acknowledge that truth, they are already under the wrath and condemnation of God for all eternity. But yet for we who have, by God's grace, been drawn to Christ and submitting to Him in this truth in this lifetime, we are acknowledging His preeminence, submitting ourselves to His Lordship, recognizing who He is as He declared Himself to be and as Scripture clearly teaches Him to be. And therefore, we are to live accordingly. Continue. Continue. Submission to His Lordship. Jesus Christ is as you've received him as Lord, so live in like manner. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word.